our children can be dismissed to head down to Transformation Station, where they'll be cared for by the team that's down there. Good morning. My name is John Reddy. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. And as many of you know, that for the past several weeks, we've been looking in the Gospel of John, a series that we call Believe and Live. Two weeks ago, we encountered Mary, the sister of Lazarus, as she worshipped Jesus through what we called an extravagant act of anointing him with not just a day or a month, but a year's worth of oil. And then, if you remember, she humbly wiped his feet with her hair in an act of love and deep devotion. Last week, Tanner brought us to the story where Lazarus, as well as Jesus, were endangered of being killed by some religious leaders in Jerusalem. And this was in the middle of even while the crowds were hailing him and calling out to him, Hosanna. And even as Jesus had recognized and knew that his hour of the crucifixion was drawing near, the purpose for which he had come. And so it's at this point in this morning's scripture that the Apostle Johnny, he slows his storytelling down. And he spends the rest of this gospel with part two where he starts to look at a pretty short period of time. See, up until now, John has been describing signs and wonders that all would indicate or teach that Jesus was the Messiah. And after every single event, Jesus would unpack and explain and describe the meaning and the significance of what they had just witnessed. Because after all, John's gospel, we should know, is a missionary gospel. It's one that was intended to be shared with others that they might actually believe in this Jesus and therefore live just as some of the original witnesses to those signs and those teachings had. This morning, John begins the process of sort of reversing that storytelling. And G begins to tell us how Jesus, recognizing like anyone who was in their last days, began to give out some words and some instructions that began to take on perhaps more weight, more significance, more what I would call gravitas. And so John offers, beginning in chapter 13, a whole series of detailed teachings and instructions and discourses to the inner circle of followers to Jesus, anticipating what is soon to happen, the climax of all history, not just redemptive history, and then after he does these discourses, he begins to narrate what we would call the passion of the Christ. It's the critical days and the hours that lead up to the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that is where this scripture this morning is going to pick up in John chapter 13. So before we read that, let me just set the stage for us a little bit. We'll find out that the Jewish feast of Passover is nearing. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're gathered for an evening supper together. Now, compared to our American culture, where we might be arranged in a long table in some chairs, their, their seating style is actually quite typical for their times, a Greco-Roman time. They would have been seated around a low table. Instead of chairs, there'd be mats on the floor. Instead of sitting, they'd be laying down. In fact, it's likely that they'd be on one elbow to lean and the other elbow to be able to eat. 
In our story, eating with that group, Jesus and at least the 12, was Peter and Judas. And then Jesus, in the middle of this meal, does something that actually shocks them. And it sets in motion the events of the passion that John will continue to teach us about until the very end of this gospel. So with that in mind, if you would open up your Bibles, turn on your iPads, flip on your smartphones, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we're going to read this very long passage beginning in verse 1. The word says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And there he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table on Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom 
I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's just bow our heads for a moment, and, and as I pray, would you just repeat after me? Good, good Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. The truth is, we are all prideful people in one way or another. There are literally hundreds of occasions in the Word of God where, where he makes his opinion of pride quite clear. Take, for example, how the Living Bible puts it in Proverbs 16.5. Pride, it says, disgusts the Lord. Take my word for it, proud men shall be punished. And that's a sobering thought given that pride, I think, is epidemic and it shows itself in so many ways amongst us. When we ignore the needs of others, we're, we're really proclaiming, my life is the most important thing. Accomplishing my goals, getting my pleasure, fulfilling my needs. When we fight with someone else, we make it clear, I have no need for relationship with you. I'll be able to accomplish whatever I need to do, regardless of what you want or without unity. When we hate, pride is at its root, root because we put forth, I am better than you are. I have a right to despise you for what you do and who you are. And when we disobey, what we're really saying is, I know what you say, and I know what you want, and I know what you need, but I have a better way that will serve me. Do you see any common theme in those kinds of statements? Have you ever heard them for yourself? Have you ever actually shared them or said them to somebody else? Each one of those starts with the idea of self. It's all about me. I like what uh, one author summarized by saying this, prideful people believe that they are or should be the source of what is good and right and worthy of praise. They also believe that they by themselves are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish and that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, they're believing that all things should be from them, to them, for them, through them. Pride is competitive towards others, and it's especially competitive towards God. Pride wants to be on top. Ultimately, the Bible teaches this, that pride is a form of self-worship. Because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, each one of us carries around the DNA that is captured in the mindset of self as our master. We focus on self. We serve self. We pursue self-recognition. We lift ourselves up oftentimes 
in self-exaltation. Whether we admit it or not, we desire to control things and to use things, including people, in order to meet the needs of self. The Bible teaches that in our pride, we can often have too high of an opinion of ourselves. In fact, we act blindly as sometimes we try to domesticate God and turn him into our personal physician and chef and butler because the truth is we believe that he is here for me. And if that isn't working for me, if I don't care to obey or pay attention to some of his desires for me, I simply will refashion God into a God of my own making. I'll turn him from capital G God to small letter G God. And as a result, captured in that kind of pride, people exist. Why? They exist to please me, to serve me, and I to impress them with my awesomeness. See, apart from God's spirit, the Bible teaches that there is no humility in self, for even our best attempts at not being completely self-serving are tainted with self. So, for example, imagine... When we left this afternoon, we were walking through Medford Square and we met a person wearing this t-shirt in the middle of the square. What would you think? What conclusion would you draw? What would, what would be your response? For me, seeing that example, my prayer would be, Lord, help me. Save me from myself. Because it's a clear and a present danger for all of us, my first encouragement this morning is that we need to guard our hearts as we seek to understand God's true humility, not the humility of that T-shirt. Apart from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we're condemned to just reap the natural consequences of worshiping ourselves. But thankfully, and we'll hear this morning, there's hope. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite authors, once said, nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach than humility. But what is humility? Because true humility focuses its attention on God and others, not self. Even a focus on others flows from a desire to love and to bring more glory to God. It is a servant's mindset that pursues the recognition and the exaltation of God himself. And with this desire comes a willingness to please God in all things and by all things that he has given. It begins with recognizing and trusting God's character, even in times of trial and suffering and tribulation. A humble person rightly thinks of God as first his creator, and himself as God's creation. A humble person doesn't even see himself as qualified to pass judgment on God and what God does. Being overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness, humble people will want to worship God and see themselves dependent on God as a truly needy person would. Thankfulness, gratitude, they'll flow from the hearts of a humble person as gentleness and patience are extended to someone else. 
For the truly humble see themselves as no better than any other person. In fact, in relation to others, the truly humble will gladly submit to those in authority. They'll prefer others over themselves. They'll be good listeners for others. They'll admit their faults when they're wrong. They'll be thankful for correction. They'll repent of sin as a way of life. And they'll joyfully celebrate the accomplishments of others. I get concerned because I think our culture sometimes gives us false ideas of what humility, biblical humility is. And so I think it's important that we also have an accurate view of what humility is not. True humility is not passive or milquetoast. Rather, those that know the depth of God's love and favor upon his children, the truly humble are people of action looking to make a great impact but under God's direction. True humility is not cowardice, sometimes wrapped up in pious clothing. No, humility and courage always go together where others melt under life's heat as they lean upon their own strength. Those humble under God's hand stand in awe of him and are prepared to obey even at their own apparent peril. True humility is not just lip service where we walk around saying all the right and meek and willing words that are necessary, but inside we have a different agenda. Humility is a matter of the heart springing into action, but it's sourced by an intimate relationship with a good, good God. And true humility is not debasing. It's not demeaning yourself beyond recognition. Rather, it's acknowledging that each of us is made in the image of God with rich deposits of gifts and talents and that they're all available for God's use and they become an act of worship to him through our acts of service to others. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and an accurate view of God, for he is the source of anything that is good. He is the means whereby good is accomplished. To him, all praise, all honor, all glory for anything done in this life is due. Our confidence as truly humble is in him and his mercy, love, and power. And as the recipients of that love, mercy, and power, we seek to offer it to others without condition, and with great sacrifice. And if because of that we're to receive any kind of honor, it should be bestowed upon us by him, not self-imposed. To be truly humble is a tall order. Who among us can actually live a life like that? 24-7, 365 days a year for the balance of life that God has given us. Well, we know that in our midst this morning, we'd all be tempted to say no one. And so that brings me to my second encouragement that really we need to look to Jesus as that ultimate example of true humility. See, right from the beginning of John 13, while he was demonstrating his ability to know all things, 
Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. And, and he was committed to his disciples. Scripture says that he had loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Although his crucifixion was approaching, he was prepared to demonstrate that commitment through selflessness and sacrificial love. Keep in mind that that demonstration, it did not flow from a position of weakness. For John tells us that Jesus was convinced of his sovereignty and of his power. How? Look at verse 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. No, that demonstration that Jesus offered this morning flowed from a profound position of humility. In fact, a humility that we can see in operation in at least three ways. First, as we read in this morning's opening scripture in Philippians 2, Tanner led us through that. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, listen, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Get this. The creator of the universe, Jesus, willingly empties himself like a water pitcher full of water, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. He humbled himself by setting aside all glory, all grandeur, and instead experienced temptation, tribulations, and trials that we, as created beings, experience. In all four Gospels, again and again, we read about this Jesus being quite familiar with the ravages of our broken world. Because, listen, he willingly, 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 and personally, 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 in the humble limits of flesh, experienced the full weight of homelessness, hunger, thirst, sorrow, abandonment. And if that weren't enough, Paul's letter to the Philippians goes on to tell us that Jesus humbled himself a second way. He says, in being, um, being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8. This, my friends, we all see as an ultimate sacrifice because there's no agenda here feeding self. Rather, it's an act of complete and unconditional love poured out for undeserving men and women like me, like Lionel, like Carlos like all of us. And so with his humble Christmas birth behind him and the humiliating Easter cross before him, Jesus in our story humbles himself again in a third way. In the presence of his disciples, the Apostle John records that he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Such a 
simple act, really. But for his disciples, it was a shocking act. It was actually scandalous. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I was tempted to take a picture off the internet of like a really foul, nasty mud cake set of feet. Because I think we might have all then been more shocked by this act of humility by Jesus. Because let's be honest, no one here really likes the idea of washing somebody's bunions off. But if we focused on that, if we simply get grossed out by the idea of maybe washing somebody's feet and getting the dust off of it, I think we're going to miss what's actually a larger shock. See, to truly appreciate how against the culture uh, this act was, how shocking it was, we have to be familiar with the cultural expectations of first century hospitality. See, in the East, with its dusty roads, to wash somebody's feet when they first arrived, it was the most basic, fundamental act of hospitality in a culture that highly valued hospitality. And for a special occasion, like the one that John is describing in today's reading, it was even more important that a foot washing be part of the ceremony of that evening. And so we need to look past just the gross factor, maybe, of handling some dirty feet. And we have to be curious, why wasn't this act of hospitality done already? It would have been expected upon arrival. Maybe there was no one in the room available, or maybe there was just nobody in the room willing. See, in the first century Palestine, this task, while it was necessary, it was the responsibility of a slave, not the master of the house, certainly not the host of the party. It was a lowly responsibility. It was reserved for lowly people. In fact, if you were in a Jewish home, if there were Jewish slaves and non-Jewish slaves serving together, it would be the non-Jewish slave who would be the one to perform this duty. It appears that even among slaves, there's a pecking order. As Jesus took off his outer garment, he adopted the dress of a slave. As he knelt down, he adopted the posture of a slave. And as he watched each stinking foot, he adopted the service of a slave. And remember, each and every foot that he washed on that occasion included the feet of Judas, the one Jesus knew would betray him soon. Well, in that supper room, the Apostle John goes on to tell us, in contrast, about two very different responses by two very different men, one Peter and one Judas. Peter, it says, in his confusion, responded in his characteristic manner, Lord, do you wash my feet? And after a teachable moment with Jesus, he learns and he swings all the way over from hesitation to all in. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Meanwhile, the Apostle John revealed 
that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, in verse 2. And yet it seems apparent that Judas maintained all appearances within the group. So much so that later when Jesus revealed that someone sitting at the table would betray him, no one thought to even accuse Judas. See, his external response to Jesus' humility betrayed his internal agenda. Finally, after Jesus had given a choice morsel to eat in fulfillment of the scriptures, the inner self that Judas had actually been actively feeding was overwhelmed by evil, as verse 27 tells us, that Satan entered into him. Now, for some, this story is troubling. It appears that Judas had no choice in the matter, and it raises many questions about free choice and determinism. We don't have enough time today to dive deeply into the matter, but I do think it's worth just mentioning perhaps one insight. The Apostle John, uh, James, excuse me, writes in chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Their desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Perhaps someday over a cup of coffee, you and I might have an interesting conversation about whether or not God forced Judas to betrayal, but we can make no mistake about it. Ultimately, Judas pursued his own agenda with himself as the master master in the center of his universe. And so there's two witnesses to this act that Jesus does of true humility, Peter and Judas, and yet there's two very different responses to it. And so let me ask you this morning, what response to Jesus' humility is in your heart? Will the humility of Jesus move you towards him or away from him? What direction are you traveling? Where is your heart inclined? Is it towards yourself as master, master? Or is it towards Jesus as servant, master? The Bible teaches that Jesus left heaven for us in all of its glory. He willingly lived a perfect life as he willingly went to the cross for us and Despite his majesty, he chooses to maintain the posture of a servant towards us, one who cares deeply. And I, for one, am supremely grateful to receive what, frankly, I don't deserve and have no right to. How about you? As followers of Christ... Looking to Jesus as the ultimate example of true humility, we should go beyond, however, just mere observation. Which brings me to my third encouragement. Each of us uh, should model Jesus as we serve others in true humility. See, immediately upon finishing his task of washing feet and putting back on his outer garments, Jesus, the master teacher, asks a teacher's question. Do you understand what I have done for you? 
See, given the history of the disciples for misunderstanding often, it seems like a reasonable question to ask, and I think Jesus wanted to make sure that they didn't miss the main point. You see, following his example, we should serve others in true humility. It's not just enough to experience grace and mercy from the one who humbled himself for all. His disciples needed to extend that grace and mercy in humble service to others as they represent him, the king. Jesus went on to say this, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Why? For a servant is no greater than the one who sent him. Blessed are you if you do them. In this morning's scripture, Jesus has given us an example, a pattern, a template, a model. Whatever you call it, it's clear that true humility, biblical humility, Jesus' humility, needs to result in humble and sacrificial action that's directed outwards to others, those that he loves also and made in his image. I like what Pastor Chastain shared in April when he said, be great by being small and serving all. It's a point that we need to be reminded of often because truthfully, I don't know about you, but we can so easily get confused and tempted to forget this. I remember as I was getting ready for this sermon, a time when I was commissioned as an elder in my last church. And as many of you know and have heard my story, when I walked into that church in 1990, I was full of hate and anger towards God. I was actually there to protect my weak-minded wife from the folks that wanted to tell her about Jesus Christ. Over the course of time, God healed me and matured me, and eventually I was asked to become an elder in that church. And although I felt unworthy, I also felt God's call, and so I accepted. As a reminder of that commissioning, I was actually given this water pitcher um, and as a, as a symbol of eldership within the life of that church, um, it reminded me of this morning's story, this water pitcher. It served me well. It stays in my office as I fight the daily temptation for pride and arrogance, like I'm sure many of us do. Well, immediately after that commissioning service, we were having a party and, and uh, a little snack. And a friend of mine came up to me and slapped me on the back and said, well, congratulations, John. Now that you're an elder, I guess that you finally get the best parking space in the parking lot. Yeah, you know, I mean, honestly, I was kind of stunned. And for a moment, I was off, taken off guard, and I didn't really know how to respond. And then God, and he does this in our lives, was so kind to whisper with his spirit a truth and a reminder that I not only had to tell him, but I had to daily tell myself. I said, no, no, no. I don't think you understand. Now that I'm an elder, I get the privilege of the worst parking space in the parking lot. See, the call to Christian leadership is a call to servant leadership. I'm not the master. He's the master. And my call is to wait in a posture of service to him and to those that he loves. 
How did I learn how to think like that? Well, honestly, part of it was what we're doing this morning, reading the word and seeing the example that Jesus Christ puts before us. But also in part, by living in a community of faith where I get to see that attitude modeled and on display. I got to learn from other people as they acted in Jesus' humility. Take, for example, my friend Steve Phillips. Steve and I served together and loved each other in Christian brotherhood now for several decades. Yes, we're old enough to say that. And I knew him long before I ever came to Redemption Hill Church. Over time, I've come to appreciate his humble and willing spirit to do whatever is necessary. And most of the time, it's been in relative anonymity. Truth is, he'd probably be embarrassed if, if I was telling you this story while he was here. Because for Steve, the spotlight is not something that he's comfortable with. But I'm going to tell you about Steve anyhow. Steve's a hard-working pipe fitter who covers high-pressure steam systems for all of the property at Boston University. It's a tough job, and it requires great skill and lots of wisdom and strength, and things can go wrong if you don't do it well. And so this winter, I realized that our friends at the Medford Boys and Girls Club, just, they just had some exposed uh, hot pipes in the gym, and, and our friends at the Medford DPW are strapped and had a lot of work on their plate. And, and I just thought, you know what? I think I'm going to call Steve. And so I did, and, and I knew that he would accept my phone call with great joy, not because my call would produce guilt or that he would experience pressure, but because he genuinely loves to respond within the giftedness that God has given him to meet the needs of others. For me, he is a walking billboard for what I call Jesus' humility. In this case, his service was going to be for a church that was not his home church. It was going to be for a community partner that he had no personal relationship with whatsoever. But he does have a relationship with Jesus. And he has received an abundance of kindness from Jesus. And he knows that Jesus loves his body, the church. And he knows that Jesus loves the staff and the children and the families of the Medford Boys and Girls Club. He made the connections of true humility. And then he modeled what he knew from Jesus' example. And he served the needs of others. Steve didn't get paid even though his skills command a large wage. He brought his own supplies, and he said to me, you know what, they really belong to God anyway, John. He snuck in when no one was looking. It wasn't important to him that he be noticed. But God noticed. God noticed his heart. And I noticed. I noticed his humility. I even took a picture of it. And as I prepared for this morning, it's that image that came to the front of my mind. The club noticed he had great, good skill. He did a great job. And benefit was received. And as a result, God was pleased. Christ was copied. And the Spirit was released as Steve worshipped through service. As the body of Christ, we want to extend 
that spirit. My feeling is, why should Steve get to be the only one who finds fruitfulness and satisfaction in humble acts of service for the benefit of others that are made in God's image? Why should he be the only person that get to do that? So next Sunday, the elders have designated next Sunday as Serve Medford Sunday. And later in our service, you're going to get some more details about the morning next Sunday. But keep in mind this, Jesus will be our model for everything that we do next Sunday. We're going to have some time for some fellowship together over some special, little special coffee bar. And we're going to worship corporately together. This time we're going to do it downstairs. And then we're going to have some time to go out during our worship hour and actually serve and meet the needs of some worthy projects in and around Medford. So I'm just telling you now, come prepared. Dress to serve. Select a project next week when we share it with you. Bring some tools. Bring a friend. For many people, their introduction to Jesus is through responding in service. Then afterwards, perhaps, as we go our way, grab some lunch. Build some margin in your schedule for next Sunday. As a church whose feet has been washed by our servant Lord, let's go wash some feet. Looking back in Paul's letter to Philippians, Let's do it as we're reminded. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As he washed the feet of his followers, Jesus displayed a genuine and, might I say, very personal love for each of his disciples. As we learned, he, he sort of formed a pattern of Christian conduct that we need to follow. And before we move on, we just need to be reminded that he provided a symbol in this act of a saving cleansing from pride and sin. This is what the scripture says. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward, hold that afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, now listen, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. See, this is what we remember and we retell around the Lord's Supper like we're going to do in just a few moments. As we look forward to that opportunity to renew, let's, let's surrender ourselves to God's Spirit. Let's cultivate humility. And how do we cultivate humility? Well, it starts with confession and then repentance, turning towards God and away from evil and adoration. Following Jesus' example, let's commit to serve others in true humility. But we're going to have to be certain 
that we guard the conditions of our hearts as we seek to understand true humility. And we're going to have to be careful not to look to anything as the supreme example except Jesus Christ. And then when we look to him, we're going to have to actively model Jesus as that ultimate example. At all times, keeping in mind this morning, what we proclaimed earlier in the service and what Paul concludes in Philippians, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we read your word this morning, I could feel all of the places and times and circumstances in my life where pride and arrogance has been forward. So Lord, um, I confess that to you and I ask for your forgiveness. I could feel even amongst those that are gathered that each and every one of us could lay our hands on at least some occasions where we have served ourselves in a way that's ungodly and not honoring to you. We ask for your forgiveness there. Lord, as I was driving here this morning, uh, you gave me this image of being force-fed humble pie. Lord, we drop all of our defenses and we say, Lord, we desire your humility. Give us a deep sense of your character and who you are. Help us to look to your son, Jesus Christ, as the example. And Father, fill us with your spirit that we might be a people who are known as truly humble. We pray these things.